haven't met, I'm part of the team here at Oasis Church and it's wonderful uh, to be together today and to open up God's Word. I've had a, a number of people say to me this morning, Adam, you're wearing blue. And I said, yes, it's to remind those New South Welshmen what happened on Wednesday night. If you've got no idea what I'm talking about, it's all good. Go Queensland. On the screen is a photo of Ned Brockman. Now, you may not have heard of him before, and that's fair enough. Ned is a 24-year-old electrician from Forbes. Why would you have heard of him? Well, late last year, Ned ran from Cottesloe Beach in Western Australia, or, and I said ran, from Cottesloe Beach in Western Australia all the way to Bondi Beach in New South Wales. He ran from one side of Australia to the other, which is a journey of almost 4,000 kilometres, and he did it in just 46 days, which is running 100 kilometres per day. Yes. Now, he did it to raise awareness of homelessness, which he did along with $1.85 million. Now, I'm sure you can imagine that there were lots of points on the journey where Ned wanted to stop running and give up. I mean, the toll that this journey took on Ned's body was severe. His knees took an absolute beating. He developed a tendonitis in his shin muscles. His feet were covered in blisters. In fact, there was one point in the journey when his feet became infested with maggots. Ew. Disgusting. Even his biceps became a source of pain from being in the flex position for so long. You can imagine there would have been so many moments when Ned wanted to give up. But he didn't. He kept going. He pushed through, he persevered until he made it to the finish line. Now, most of us are probably not going to do what Ned did. I know that I'm definitely not going to do what Ned did. But the reality is there are plenty of moments in the journey of life when we attempted to give up. It might be a really difficult environment at work or at school. Maybe it's bullying that that just becomes overwhelming. Maybe it's in your parenting journey. It becomes so difficult that that you're tempted to, to give up. Maybe it's a sickness or a disease or a diagnosis. Maybe it's a mental health challenge that you're going through. Maybe it's a relationship breakdown. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one. There are so many difficult moments in the journey of life when we are tempted to give up. And the reason I bring this up is because this morning we're going to look at a church that was under pressure. This church was being tempted to give up. Here's what Jesus says to them in his message to them. He says, I know that you have little strength. They're weak. They're waning. But then what does Jesus go on to say? He says, yet you have kept my word and have not denied 
my name. That this church was small and insignificant and weak. But like Ned Brockman, they, they didn't give up, they didn't give in, they didn't turn away, they didn't turn around, they didn't stop running. They kept going. And so Jesus has an encouraging message for them. Now, if you haven't been around for the last little while, we have been in a sermon series called Dear Church. We're looking at the seven letters which we find in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. We're looking at seven letters which Jesus sent to seven ancient churches which have an enduring message for all churches, including ours as well. Now today we come to the sixth letter in the series. We come to the letter to the church in the city of Philadelphia, which is not Philadelphia in America, but Philadelphia in Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. Now this letter from Jesus is a really positive letter. Like the the earlier letter that we looked at to the church in Smyrna, Jesus has no criticism of this church in Philadelphia. He only has compliments for them. He only encourages them because he wants them to keep going. He doesn't want them to give up. Now, what was the the situation in Philadelphia? What was causing this small, insignificant church to be tempted to give up? Well, it's clear from the letter, just by looking at it, that the, the problems were not coming from inside the church. Sometimes problems that churches face, they come from the inside, whether it's false teaching or division or disunity. And we've seen that in some of the other churches. But that's not the case here in Philadelphia. It seems that the problems were coming from the outside. They were facing opposition from those around them. And so Jesus writes to encourage them to keep going. And to encourage this church, Jesus makes a series of promises to them. He actually makes five promises to this church in Philadelphia to encourage them to keep going. And the truth is, these promises are for us as much as they were for the believers in Philadelphia. I mean, if you have ever been laughed at for being a Christian, if you have ever been left out of something or or some group for being a believer in Jesus... If you have ever felt like your life would just be a little bit easier if you were to give up your faith, then the promises in this letter are for you as well. And I want you to hear what Jesus has to say to you, what Jesus is promising to you today as we study this letter together. Now, before we dive in to look at these promises, uh, it's important for us to look at the one who is making the promises, because that makes a bit of a difference, doesn't it? If a politician makes a promise during election season, you're probably going to hold that promise a little bit lightly. But if a parent makes a promise to you, and especially a loving, devoted parent, then you're probably likely to believe that promise. So who's the one making these promises to us? Well, look at how Jesus introduces himself in verse 7. Remember, each letter Jesus introduces himself in a different way that is relevant to that church. Here's how he introduces himself to the church in Philadelphia. These are the words of him who is holy and true and who holds the key of David. So Jesus introduces himself in three ways. He's holy, he's true, and he holds the key of David. What do these things mean? Well, first of all, he is holy. Literally, this means he is the Holy One. 
Now, in the Bible, this is a title that is only ever applied to God. Jesus here is claiming to be equal with God. He is none other than God himself making these promises to us. Secondly, Jesus says he is true. In other words, he is trustworthy. He is reliable. You know, we'll say about someone, they are a true friend. And we mean that they're devoted, they're trustworthy, they're genuine. And this is true about Jesus. We can trust what he's saying to us. He is the most true person in the universe. Thirdly, he holds the key of David. Now, what does this mean? What what, what is this referring to? Well, it's a reference to Isaiah 22 in the Old Testament. You can go and read that chapter in your Bible later today. And what you'll see there is that there's this man named Eliakim. And Eliakim literally has the keys to the palace in Jerusalem. He is the one that is able to admit or to refuse entry into the presence of the king. And so when Jesus applies this title to himself, he is saying that he is the one who can admit entrance into the presence of God. He is the one that can admit entrance into the kingdom of God. He has the keys of the kingdom. And so the one who is making these promises to the church in Philadelphia and to us today is the holy one. He's the true one, and he holds the keys of the kingdom. We can trust what he's saying to us. We can rely on his promises. So what are those promises that Jesus makes to the church in Philadelphia and to us as well? Well, the first is in verses 7 and 8. And Jesus essentially says to this church in Philadelphia, I will welcome you. Look at what he goes on to say in verse 8. Jesus says, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Now, there are lots of doors, lots of doors in this world that are closed to us. For example, if you went to Buckingham Palace and you tried to open the front gate, you're probably going to find that it's locked. If you pulled out your keys and tried to use them on the lock, you're probably going to get tasered or at least tackled by the dudes with the big black hats. There's a lot of doors in this world that are closed to us. But Jesus says to these weak, small, insignificant Christians in Philadelphia, he says the door into God's presence, the door into God's kingdom, it's not closed, it's open to you. And you can imagine how this would have been good news for these struggling believers in Philadelphia. Almost every other door around them in their day would have been closed to them. The door to the Jewish synagogue was closed to them. The door into positions of power was, were closed to them. The door into social circles and social acceptance would have been closed to them. Almost every door in their day was closed to them, except the one door that ultimately mattered. The door into God's presence, the door into God's kingdom. It is open to them, and Jesus says no one can close it on them. And this is true for us as well. I mean, today, in our day, because of our Christian faith, there might be doors that are closed to us. It might be a door into a friendship group at work or at school or a peer group. It might be a door into a new job or a promotion. It might be the door into earthly riches and earthly rewards. 
I mean, the doors to all kinds of things are closed to us because of our Christian faith. But the one door that matters is open to us. The door to salvation, the door into God's kingdom, it cannot be shut on us. And so in the future, if a door is slammed in your face because of your faith in Jesus, I want you to remember this promise from Jesus, that the one door that matters is open to you. And if you're not a Christian here today, and maybe you've come in thinking God would never welcome me into his family, Jesus himself is saying the door is open. And you're welcome to come in through him. It's the first thing that Jesus says to this church in Philadelphia. He says, I will welcome you. The second promise that Jesus makes is there in verse 9. He says, I will vindicate you. Now, it's a, a, a big word, isn't it? Vindicate. It's not one we use very often. So let me give you an example of what it means. Maybe you've probably heard of the Wright brothers. The Wright brothers invented the airplane. If you've you know, gone overseas or gone on a plane recently, you have the Wright brothers to thank. And they are rightly celebrated for their achievement. But this wasn't always the case. For about a year after they had invented the airplane, the US government and the US military remained skeptical. There was a magazine called the Scientific American Magazine, and they called them the Lying Brothers didn't believe that what they had achieved was true. But within a few short years, air travel was starting to catch on in a big way. And so the Wright brothers were rightly honoured, and pun intended, rightly honoured for their, for their achievement. They were vindicated. They were proved correct. Now Jesus says here that something similar will happen for these believers in Philadelphia. Right now, they're looked down on. They're laughed at. They're dismissed. They're on the margins of society. But Jesus says there is a day coming when they will be vindicated. They will be seen for who they really are. Here's what Jesus says. Here's the way he says it in verse 9. He says, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Now, it's vivid, strong language, isn't it? You see, what seemed to be happening was the Jewish community in Philadelphia, they seemed to be slandering these Christians. They seemed to be causing trouble for these Christians. They seemed to be saying to them, you're not the true people of God. We are. You don't truly belong to God. We do. And they were making life difficult for them. That, you know, they were kind of saying the same thing that the, the scientific magazine was saying about the Wright brothers. You are lying. And that's why Jesus says, no, 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 they are lying. They don't belong to God. They're actually doing the work of Satan. They're accusing God's people. They're not true Jews. They're liars. Now, it's not that Jesus has something against Jews. He was a Jew himself. But he's simply showing us that to belong to God is not a, not a matter of ethnicity. To belong to God is about trusting in Jesus. That's what truly matters. The question is not where were you born. The question is what's your response to Jesus? Let me put it this way. The true people of God are those who trust in Jesus. 
are all who trust in Jesus. Jew, Aussie, South African, whoever. This is the way Jesus said it in John 14, a well-known verse of Scripture. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said in John 10, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Another way to put it is that the only way to the Father is through the Son. And equally, to reject the Son is to reject the Father. And this is what these Jews in in that day needed to learn. They're saying to these Christians, you don't belong to God. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't love you. And you know, look, at one level, it probably looked like it. Because this church was weak, small, insignificant. And we maybe think, well, if God truly loves someone, they're going to be big and powerful and prosperous. And so it might not have looked like God loved this small, insignificant church. But Jesus says, there is a day coming when everyone will see who you truly are. You are my people and I love you dearly. And this is an encouraging truth for us, 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 us as well. You know, today, in Australia, in the Western world, the church of Jesus can look a little bit insignificant at times. It can look a bit small and struggling, weak and irrelevant. And maybe you even feel this at times. I mean, maybe someone has said to you, why do you go to church on a Sunday? Why do you waste your weekend? It's a beautiful day outside. Why do you give your money away? Why do you put limits on on, on your sexuality? Why would you bother? I mean, to so many people, the Christian life can look repressive and the church can look irrelevant. But Jesus says there is a day coming when we will be vindicated when people will see who we truly are the people of God loved by God precious to God and you can imagine how encouraging this must have been for this small church in Philadelphia and how encouraging it is for you and for me today so Jesus says I will welcome you he says I will vindicate you and then the third promise he makes is that I will protect you Here's what he says in verse 10. He says, Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. And so Jesus says to this church in Philadelphia, because you have held on to me, because you have been faithful to me, I will be faithful to you. I will hold on to you. I will keep you. I will protect you. Now, Jesus specifically says, I will protect you from the hour of trial that is going to come. Now, what is this hour of trial referring to? Let me be very honest. There is some ambiguity here. Scholars spill a lot of ink trying to explain and discuss what this means. But whatever it means, what is very clear is that Jesus will protect his people. That's the the promise that he gives to this church. I will keep you. I will protect you. Now, does this mean that Jesus will kind of just remove them from suffering, remove them from the trial, pull them out of it? 
I don't think so. And I think it's related to what Jesus says earlier in John 17. You know, when Jesus is praying for his disciples, he's praying for his followers, what does he pray for them? He says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. And so I don't think the promise is that Jesus is going to remove these believers from any sort of trial or suffering. That's never the promise in Scripture. God never says that we won't suffer in this life. The promise, I think, is that Jesus will hold on to them through the trial, that he won't let them go in the trial, that the trial won't ultimately harm them because it won't ultimately separate them from God's love. Romans 8, nothing, not even death, can separate us from God's love. In other words, I think the promise is not physical protection, but the promise is spiritual preservation. It's a little bit like swimming lessons with your, your, your little child. I don't know if you can recall that or remember that or been involved in that, but little kids don't always like getting in the pool, especially if you've got to dunk them under and throw them around and do all that kind of stuff. Some love it, but you know, some don't. And so some kids probably would prefer if you just kind of took them out of the pool. But you know how important it is for your child to have swimming lessons, and so you say to them, you're going to stay in the pool. You've got to do this lesson. But don't worry, I'll hold on to you. I won't drop you. I won't let you go. I won't let you drown. I will keep you. I will protect you. And this is kind of what Jesus is saying to these believers in Philadelphia. No matter what is going to come, I won't abandon you. I won't let you go. I will keep you. I will protect you. Not even death can separate you from my love. And so Jesus says to this church in Philadelphia, I will welcome you. I will vindicate you. I will protect you. And then fourthly, he promises and he says to them, I will come to you. Here's what what Jesus says in verse 11. He says, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Now, in our day, a crown symbolizes royalty. But in that day, a crown symbolized victory. It was given to the winner of an athletic contest. And so Jesus is saying that these believers have the ultimate crown, the crown of salvation, the crown of eternal life. They have won the ultimate victory in Jesus. Now, normally, a crown is given at the end of a race. But notice here that these believers already have their crown. Jesus doesn't say, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that I can then give you a crown. He says, I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. He's not saying work really hard so that one day you can earn your crown. He's saying, I have given you this crown, and so hold on to it. Don't give up. Now, what's going to encourage them to do that, to hold on, to not give up? Well, it's to know that Jesus is coming for them and coming soon. I mean, if you're hanging off the edge of a cliff, you want to know that help is coming. And especially that it's coming soon. And so this is what Jesus says, I am coming soon. But we get to this point, and what's kind of the elephant in the room? What's the question that you're wondering? What's the holdup? Where's Jesus? What did he mean by soon? Because here we are, 2,000 plus years later, 2,000 plus years after this letter was written, and Jesus still hasn't come. What did he mean by soon? 
Now, again, there is some ambiguity here, but, but New Testament scholar Gordon Fee, he, at least to my mind, helpfully explains it this way. He says there is a sense in which soon means at the door. In other words, Jesus' return is not necessarily immediate. It's not necessarily going to happen right away. But it is imminent in that it could happen at any moment. That Jesus is at the door and he could open it at any time. And so we need to look forward to it. We need to be encouraged by it and we need to be prepared for it. And this is kind of the way that Jesus talked about his return in the New Testament. So Luke 12, for example, Jesus said, you must be ready because the Son of Man, talking about himself, will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Jesus is coming at any moment. He's at the door. He's not far away. He will come for us. And this is an encouraging truth for these believers in Philadelphia, and it's an encouraging truth for us as well. He's not abandoned us. He's not left us. He's coming for us. And this is what Jesus says to these struggling believers. I will welcome you. I will vindicate you. I will protect you. I will come to you. And fifthly and finally, he says, I will be with you forever. You've probably heard the saying, nothing lasts forever. It's generally true most of the time. There's not much in this world that lasts forever. Even our wedding vows, we say, till death do us part. But our relationship with God begins now and it goes on forever. This is the point of what Jesus is saying in verse 12 when he says, The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. And so the one who's holding on to Jesus, the one who's trusting in Jesus, they become a pillar in the temple of God. Now, this doesn't mean that you're going to become part of the fittings. You, know, you turn into a, a concrete pillar for, for all eternity. The point is that you're going to be part of the family forever. You're going to be part of God's household forever. You know, I, I remember visiting some temples in, in Egypt uh, from ancient Egypt, and they just had these massive pillars that went right around this complex. They were, they were super impressive, and I you know, admired them. I took some photos of them, but I could not budge them. I could not move them. And this is the point of what Jesus is saying. If you're trusting in him, you have a permanent place in God's family. See, no one can shut the door into God's family, and no one can throw you out. You're safe. You're secure. It's the same thing that, that Jesus says as, as he goes on in verse 12. I won't read it there, but Jesus essentially says we are given a new name. Now, to name something implies your ownership of it. I mean, this is why people name their boats if they've got them. That's why they name their pets. They name their kids. Now, it implies that they belong to you. And when Jesus says that he will give us a new name, he's saying that we belong to God. That nothing can take us out of his family. And so how encouraging for these weak, insignificant believers in Philadelphia. You know, their position in their world was precarious, but their position in God's family was secure. And so, like Ned Brockman on his journey across Australia... There are going to be a lot of moments in life when we're tempted to give up. When we're tempted to stop running, to turn around, to turn away, to give in. 
And Jesus makes these promises to the church in Philadelphia and to the church at Oasis Church so that we will keep trusting him, so that we will look to him, so that we won't let go of him, so that we will not give up on him, so that we will keep running, keep going, keep trusting. Because the door is open to us and the finish line is ahead of us and it's far better than we could ever have imagined. And so let's keep running. Let me pray. Father, thank you for these precious words and these encouraging promises given to your people. And Lord, if there are those of us here this morning, if we're honest, we'd say I've been tempted lately to give up, to turn away, to become too much, too overwhelming, too hard. Lord, help us to, to look to you. Help us to look to these promises and to not grow weary. But help us by the, the power of your spirit, by the truth of your word, to keep moving forward, to keep clinging to Jesus, to keep trusting him until the very end. And that day when our faith is made sight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.